There was a lot going on this April in the world at large and a lot going on on this podcast, too. For the world at large, wow, a European war creating economic conditions increasingly harmful to the stock market, which has been really weak. Let's talk about that up front this week. But for this podcast, too, critical subjects like financial freedom, which kicked off this month, and our own mortality, which featured an entire dinner dedicated to it, a first for this podcast, maybe for any other, played big roles in Rule Breaker investing this past month. And they generated responses. Yours. Some compelling thoughts, stories, reactions, as always. Because it's mailbag. Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. What a week. A lot happening in the world this week. Of course, the Russian aggression into Eastern Europe continues to dominate the headlines. But wow, so too did Elon Musk buying Twitter. And Elon is such an attention magnet anyway. And Twitter is a platform of a lot of people who make noise. I hope mostly productive. I try to make some productive noise. And I appreciate Twitter. Some people avoid it like the plague. Some people may want to start avoiding it as a consequence of Elon's purchase, assuming that goes through. Others may be attracted to it for the first time. I think Twitter is a wonderful company. I appreciate the platform. Um, Whether or not it was a good deal at $44 billion, I don't have a strong opinion there, but it certainly is an interesting topic. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it because I think if you want to hear anybody say what they think about Elon buying Twitter, well, you can find that information. It is headlines everywhere, at least those of us who are stock market inclined. So I kind of feel like it's been beaten to death already. But for this podcast this week, well, it's our mailbag episode. And of course, the April that was, was a really interesting, a unique April. Looking back at other Aprils, other Aprils may have looked like other Aprils in this this podcast in its seven years. But this April, well, it began with the first day of the month, April Fool's Day, and an announcement that we have launched the Motley Fool Foundation, whose purpose is financial freedom for all. And I hope you enjoyed the first podcast this month, which was introducing the Motley Fool Foundation with our executive director, Jennifer Gennaro Oxley, and George Kaloff, our program director. It was a wonderful conversation. I've got some tweets and some mailbag items speaking to that. So the theme there. It's going to be financial freedom. If there are two big themes to this month's mailbag, one of them is financial freedom. And then if you were listening to this podcast, either or both of the past two weeks, and I can imagine some people may have intentionally avoided this podcast, either or both of the past couple of weeks, which in a way is part of the problem, but I'm not judging. We focused on death. Or another way of thinking about it is your mortality, my mortality, and inevitability but especially the value of talking about it, especially with those who are going to come after you so they understand your intentions and desires. And there is so much human tragedy born of a surprise diagnosis or outcome, stressful decisions having to be made by loved ones who don't feel fully prepared because we never talked about it. And so, wow, we did talk about it over dinner on this month's podcast. Michael Hebb 
joining us for the second week, talking about his wonderful book, Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. And then last week, I think it was a tour de force. I think this one's going to make Besties 2022. And that was an actual death over dinner with me, my wife, Margaret, Michael, our MC, and several talented friends, including a return appearance by Jennifer Gennaro Oxley, among others. And yeah, Jennifer's going to be joining me this podcast to talk some about financial freedom. We probably won't talk too much about death, but the second chapter of this month's podcast was certainly about mortality and the importance of acknowledging it and discussing it. And on the back end of this show, I have a few wonderful mailbag items speaking to that. So that's really where we're focused. Now, if you're a mailbag veteran, we've been doing these dozens of times. You probably would expect me to start this show as I usually do, which is hot takes from Twitter, speaking of Twitter. And so let's do it. I have two speaking to the financial freedom part of this month's podcasts and of this week's mailbag. The first one from at Harley M. Carroll. Harley, I appreciated this. Defining financial freedom. Harley says, I often say that financial freedom is doing what I want, when I want, with whom I want, and how I want. And I think that's a wonderful definition of financial freedom. Thank you for that, Harley. Doing what you want, when you want, with whom you want, and how you want. And then Alice at Alice 73116809. I wonder if those numbers have meaning. I'm not that into numerology, but Alice, love this as well. She defines financial freedom this way. It's when you have money left to buy you the time you need to do what you like. So some nice overlap between those two definitions. Defining financial freedom is a creative act. It's something that a lot of us probably bring our own unique angle on. And yet, kind of like other big topics like leadership, there are probably about 100 different ways to define leadership and at least 100 different ways to define financial freedom. But thank you, Harley and Alice, for those thoughts. And Jennifer's coming up shortly to discuss more about financial freedom and react to some of your wonderful questions and thoughts about the Motley Fool Foundation introduced earlier this month. But before we get there, let me share two more tweets. This one is from Mark Katz at Actual Katz, talking about death over dinner. Mark wrote, really good show. Didn't know about Michael Hebb or hashtag death over dinner. This topic is top of mind, Mark writes. We surveyed 10,000 people and found that 50% of men and 51% of millennials actively avoid thinking about death. And he lists findings at report.wealth.com. This is the 2022 State of Estate Planning Report, Estate Planning Trends and Industry. Mark, obviously working, doing surveys within that industry. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, half of all guys don't talk about it, and half of all millennials don't actively don't want to talk about it. I guess that says something good about women and older people. I'm assuming by inference that women and older people do a better job at this, and I think we should follow their example. And my fourth and final tweet, this one certainly brought a smile to my face. This is from NYC Fool, at Fool NYC. Now, this is not one of our employees. This is just a fan, but thank you, at Fool NYC. This was sent six days ago. Was feeling down about the market and the general trend of things, so thought I'd turn to my favorite optimist, at David G. Fool's podcast to see what he's talking about. NYC Fool writes, death. He's talking about death. 
And NYC Fool includes an emoji, the face with tears of joy emoji. Well, I'm going to use that as an opportunity to speak to the market right now with Rule Breaker Investing mailbag item number one this month. Yeah, because I think we should talk about the stock market, which has been horrific. It has been a horrible six months. I was just checking my own numbers. I don't know about you, but my net worth is down 38% since early November. So six months down 38%. That never feels good. Over the last seven years of doing this podcast week in and week out, we've had quarters like that. I remember the last quarter of 2016, so December 2016-ish, about six years ago. I remember my portfolio was down 25% that quarter. So this is not unprecedented at all. And by the way, this has all happened before, and it will all happen again, which leads me, if I want to say three things about this market, I think thing number one is just acknowledging that. You know, people think it's epic to live through and hold through hard times. You'll see people on social media, you might meet somebody near a water cooler, and they'll say things like, who would have held Amazon in the 90s into 2001 when it went down from 95 to 7? Or who would have held Netflix back in 2011? Remember Quickster? When that high-flying stock lost more than two-thirds of its value inside a year. And I hope you know this about me. I've done both of those. I've done both of those things. But it's always made to sound like an epic achievement or something nobody would do. But not only have I done it, but I bet a lot of you have too. If you've been following The Motley Fool, knowing that the only term that counts is the long term, and if you don't try to time the market, and if you're willing to sit there and look silly for six months or 18 months, if you're open to the pain of a 38% drop in six months, practically getting cut in half inside a year, which really hurts. But if you're, as I've said, on the roller coaster, if you're strapped in as a stock market investor for life, you know it's a huge mistake to start guessing whether you should hop off or when. You know the best thing that you can do is stay focused on great companies, holding them through good times and bad because you're going to see a lot of both. And by the way, more good times than bad. There are a lot of bad things happening in the world right now. I think I see justification for the stock market having been so weak. And I'm not just talking about high multiples, which we've all been living through, not just in 2021, but for years and years now, with very low interest rates, as I've often taken pains to say, you're always going to have very high multiples. So people were pointing out the stock market looked rich, looked richly valued in 2015 and 17 and 19. And that's because interest rates were so low with inflation the highest it's been in a few decades, which is not a good thing. Those are all reasons for the stock market to have come down. But really, I'm looking at the world at large, and I'm looking at the pain of unnecessary human conflict brought on by aggression, which is really old school and not called for anymore, I don't think. And I've already spoken to this on this podcast, and I hope you agree with me. I think this world needs more peace than violence, but that's a big reason why the stock market should be weak. You know, supply chain logistics, already a problem coming out of the pandemic, all of a sudden has been greatly exacerbated 
by war in Europe, a phrase I wasn't expecting to say in the latter half of my lifetime and something that I I trust won't last too much longer. And I believe in happy endings. We'll see how things play out. I know it's going to take longer than most people think. But overall, yeah, there are a lot of reasons the stock market should not be strong and we should not be at 52-week highs. And I'm accepting of that. And by the way, if you've been on this earth for more than a few decades, you've seen other bad times and other logical reasons why your stocks won't be at their new highs. But you also, I hope, share my optimism, making your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. I believe the best force we have for good on this earth is entrepreneurship. Our entrepreneurs, the people who in each society think of a better new product or a better new service, a solution. And the more we can enable the business world to solve our problems, the more we trade with each other and don't want to attack each other, the better off things are going to be. So I think there are very logical reasons why right now your stocks and mine aren't doing so well. And yet I have a profound optimism of the goodness of our future together. So thing number one is just understand that it's not really that epic an achievement to hold through hard times, to hold individual stocks like Amazon or Netflix when they had really hard times in the past. And boy, Netflix has had two horrible sell-offs the last two quarters it's reported earnings. That hasn't felt good at all to me. But really, forget about individual stocks. Really, just the whole market has been acting this way. And it's part of life. It's happened before, and it will happen again in future. And yet, the stock market has averaged through good times and bad, 9% or so annualized returns for the last century. I guess my two other things I want to say are really quicker points. The first is, if you've listened to my old podcast or read my essay, which you can Google using Google, Meet the World's Worst Investor, you know exactly how I'm feeling right now. And for those of you for whom that phrase reminds you of that podcast, which you can Google, or that article, which you can Google and reread, you're probably feeling it too. So I just want you to know thing number two here is everybody's feeling this right now. It's not just you or me or any regrets that you could have sold in 2021 or you should have sold. I don't feel that way about myself, even though I'm well down. But just recognize that everyone's feeling. And part of what I love about The Motley Fool, this podcast, our company, the culture that we've built up with a million plus members over the years is there are so many others you can connect with who are feeling the same way that you are. So many fools have stayed connected through social media, even during times where we as fellow employees couldn't see each other at work, or we haven't had any face-to-face member gatherings. But it is that power of community. We're going to speak to that a little bit later this podcast, but that's such an important thing to be reminded of. So please, if you're feeling down, recognize that everybody else is feeling the same. Don't let those feelings feed on yourself. Remember your inner Shirzad. And especially, I'll say, the media, you'll see financial media, or the more trader-oriented types often will make you feel like you've been a total fool, small F, for being invested in high-priced stocks that have all so dramatically sold off. A lot of that, of course, is both true, but it's Monday morning quarterbacking. That same mentality Those same people never did buy Amazon back in the day in the first place or never did pay up to own many of the great companies like Mercado Libre or Etsy or other temporarily fallen stars that I think will rise once again. So I would just 
counsel you not to let other people's opinions that you've been a small F fool for being invested, I wouldn't let those affect you too much. I hope you can get past that and just recognize I too feel like the world's worst investor right now, but this isn't the first time I've felt that. It won't be the last. And so just take solace in that. And as I've said a number of times, just keep swimming, which reminds me of thing number three I wanted to say, which is I did do a a full podcast on this topic a month ago. It's called Market Got You Down. And for a lot of you, I think you appreciated that podcast. I got a lot of great feedback around it. For those who need to hear it again, it's there for you. I speak at more length about this. I hope I encourage you. I remind you of the importance of staying invested all the way through good times and bad. And of course, I rock my inner dory. Just keep swimming. You know, I tweeted out, I'm at David G. Fool. If you ever want to follow me on Twitter, I tweeted out in the past week this. I said, in bull markets, I get busy tracking. In bear markets, I get busy living. Hashtag it works. And it really does. I think it's a lot of fun. I, I, I admittedly spend too much time checking how my stocks are doing when the market's going up and recalculating all of the financial implications of that because it is real and it feels great. And when the market starts selling off, I do not obsess about those downtimes. I know the good times outweigh them. And so I really swap getting busy tracking for getting busy living. And in some senses, then NYC fool, that's maybe why it was great to talk about death this month. It was always part of the plan, by the way. I plan out my podcast a few months ahead of time, so I had no idea what April would actually be like when Michael Hebb signed aboard a few months ago to talk to us this month. But I'm kind of really delighted that we had those important conversations. So there it is, rule breaker mailbag item number one, because I felt compelled to speak to this horrible market, and I hope that was helpful. All right, well, let's go to Rule Breaker Mailbag item number two. And before I start reading this lovely note from Jason Moore, I want to say hello to my friend and compadre, Jennifer Gennara Oxley. Jennifer, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks, David. Happy to be here. What a month for you. I mean, you were not just there at the start, though you were April Fool's Day, the launch of the Motley Fool Foundation, but we had a supper, a memorable supper together on a totally different note last week. Thank you for being in it to win it all the way through. All the way. All right, well, let's stay in it to win it here and provide some winning responses to a number of thoughtful notes we got. We're going to, as long as you can give me 20 minutes or so, Jennifer, let's go over four together, four mailbag items. A lot of interest, certainly, in the foundation, its announcement. Some good questions, too. Let's start off with this one Rule Breaker mailbag item number two. It comes from longtime fool Jason Moore. Hi, David. I'm writing in about the April 6th episode highlighting the Motley Fool Foundation. I love getting to know a bit about the team and hearing the passion from both Jennifer and George. When you all speak about the work that the foundation is going to do in the upcoming years, your voices really come alive. It's awesome to hear. I first want to just highlight what George said, Jason writes, about how The Motley Fool has helped to demystify investing and now how The Motley Fool Foundation will be able to help demystify money. What a tremendous Insight, the ability to bring financial literacy to a broader audience and help them understand that finance doesn't have to be a mystery, but instead can be predictable when you know what to look for. I also want to touch on the five key drivers of financial freedom. And Jason, you'll be glad to know Jennifer Jason does list them accurately. Housing, health, education, work, 
money, we often present them in that very same order. Housing, health, education, work, money. But you spoke to a sixth and more abstract driver being mindset. And it is indeed a critical piece. Now, one thing that The Motley Fool does well is connect its members and help build up the community. Jason writes, and I kind of love this. We're going to discuss this. He writes, I think this is a seventh driver, community, that can act like the glue for the previous six. A community helps people immediately feel welcomed and supported as they start their journey to financial freedom. As members grow and learn, they will find new roles to help both learn and explore, but also start to support the others around them. This, in turn, will help to build confidence in their knowledge and skills. And as they become financially free, they'll provide the opportunity to give back and stay connected by serving others. I love this model, Jason said. I think he actually half came up with it himself. But anyway, I love it, too. Congratulations to the whole team. And I look forward to seeing what lies ahead. Fool on Jason Moore. Well, Jennifer, you and I have talked about that sixth driver which we do often label as mindset. And the, the Motley Fool, I think, really does a good job with that. And, and I, do, do you still agree that even if you have housing, health, education, work, and money, which are the key drivers that must all be present for financial freedom, if you don't have the right mindset, you could probably make bad decisions about those and quickly fall out of financial freedom. But more to Jason's point here, how about that seventh? Awesome. What, what do you think, what, what do you see as the role that community has in the Motley Fool Foundation. I really appreciate Jason's point of view. And I'm just going to be clear. I came here because of the Fool community. One of the main reasons I came because two-thirds of Americans remain financially unstable. It's a very stubborn number. Something's not working. And I think we have the key in something we call Fool Fuel in our community. So it is those five drivers. Are they connected? Are they working well in their own system? Do people have the mindset and the agency, the financial literacy, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about maybe later? And do people have the community that they need to not only be the glue, but also the fuel to actually accelerate change and their own change and that? So it was just, let me just give a quick example. I just came Please. back from an event in South Carolina where you know earlier we talked about our dinner at your house which was a which amazing group of people talking about financial freedom and the possibilities and so I'm down in South Carolina with two fools I'm going to talk about them here cuz they are amazing Neil and Joy Grayson and those fools hosted a reception for the foundation speaking of community right and as a woman women organize in community so this is also a concept that I know at the core Mm-hmm. They invited friends from all walks of life in Greenville, South Carolina. And the outcome was a community of people and fools that are already fueling the movement. They're already doing major things in financial literacy, credit building, et cetera. And they were raring to go with us. They were so excited to potentially work with the Fool Foundation to scale the work nationally and locally. So it just, it, it, the biggest thing that happened at the end of that dinner was not only this recognition that, we can do something about this. It needs to be done. And that community is the best way for us to make it happen. I love that you say that. I love that Jason underlined that. I especially appreciate that the Graysons were living demonstrations of that by bringing members of their community in Greenville, South Carolina, a wide mix of people, all of whom see 
the power and benefits of financial freedom for all, all in your neighborhood, all in your county, all in your state, all in our nation, which is at least our initial focus is just domestically, primarily for the Motley Fool Foundation. You know, we did talk about death over dinner, but it sounds like you just got back from, let's talk about financial freedom over dinner or at least cocktails. Did anything jump out to you? Was there a story or anything that reminds you of the importance of community? Yes. First of all, there were people in the room from corporate, political, nonprofits. And what I found in that room is that three of the organizations had already partnered to launch financial literacy programs at organizations where we, we typically see the coping segment, you know, the restaurants and otherwise where people really are working hard and struggling. Mm-hmm. So these, these the people had actually connected already to do this kind of thing. They knew people were falling through the cracks. And when they told me about it, I thought, oh, this is just exactly what we need to be doing at the foundation in the sense that one of our roles is to highlight the amazing work these local mm. communities are doing, especially our full members like Jason and others and other listeners. Yeah. Um, and then to look at those interventions and say, which ones do we really need to double down on? And that's something we'll talk about later as well. But there are many examples. Well, I know how much energy you bring and Jennifer, and it's in part, I think, because you get so much energy from the community, which, as you mentioned, is a big reason why you're with us at The Molly Fool. And I'm just excited to hear that story and to think about the importance of doing it with others. I do think my own tendency to a fault sometimes is to bootstrap it, roll up my sleeves, be a cowboy, figure out how to do it myself, American West, even though I'm hopelessly East Coast. But I really think a major trend, not just for for the Molly Fool Foundation, but I think for the world at large, is increasing amounts of doing it with a community. If you want to get healthy, the best way to get healthy is to hang out with a community of people who eat healthy or to join someone else's yoga class and be there in a community. The list goes on. So if community is a stock, I'm definitely a buyer and community for the Motley Fool Foundation with an existing worldwide community we've built up over 29 years. Yeah, I'll take me some of that. Well, thank you, Jason Moore, for that. Jennifer, let's move on to Rule Breaker Mailbag item number three. Now, this one's a horse of a different color, and I kind of love this. So, Martin Keogh, thank you. Uh, Hi, David. I'm excited to follow along, possibly be involved as you start up the Motley Fool Foundation. As soon as the website was up, Martin writes, I love this, Jennifer. I know you do too. Listen to this. As soon as the website was up, I read through every page. Afterwards, he writes, I was somewhat flummoxed as to what the foundation is going to do. So I was thrilled when you devoted an entire podcast to accompany the launch. After listening, again, get this, after listening to the podcast twice. Thank you, Martin. Unfortunately, he goes on, I'm still confused. (laughs) I feel like I do after hearing people talk about cryptocurrency a bit cross-eyed. So, To close, here's what I understand and can get behind. And I'm actually going to read each of these and ask you yes or no, Jennifer. Does he have it right or not, right? So um, we're going to enumerate these, and you're going to give a check or or not, and then we're going to answer his final question. So here is what I understand and can get behind. One, you are centering the work around the people you intend to serve. Jennifer, yes or no? Centering them in the solutions. Yes and. Yes and. Okay, good. Next one, number two, he says, those people are going to be the third of people who are financially coping 
rather than the third that's financially successful and the third that is financially vulnerable. Jennifer, yes or no? Yes. Third, I understand the five drivers of financial freedom that you hope to address. Jennifer, yes or no? Big yes, Martin. We have to assume he's got that one. But then he closes with, but beyond partnering with people and organizations who are already doing good work in these areas, he says, I don't get what actions the foundation intends to take. So here is his, here's the question we'd love for you to answer, Jennifer. And again, mm-hmm. this is from somebody who read every page of the website and then listened to our podcast twice. I mean, Martin, first of all, I hope you enjoyed it. I mean, I try to make these podcasts stand the test of time. Whether they're worth listening to twice in a single week, I, I don't know, but I think it's because you were confused. So that's my fault. Jennifer, his closing question how would you describe what you were going to do if you were describing it to the people you intend to serve? He closes, maybe then I can understand it. Thanks for taking on this Herculean effort. So Jennifer, how would you describe what we are going to do if you were describing it right now to the people we intend to serve? First of all, Martin's passion for this topic and his loyalty, your loyalty, Martin, to the fool and to helping others obtain the same financial freedom. It's Mm. exactly why we're here. This is the community that we want to fuel. Fool, fuel. Try not saying that three times fast. (laughs) When you were asked this question, and I'm glad that you mentioned that it was confusing, because it is confusing. I just want to be candid about it. It is not an easy answer. It never has been. And I think we always have to strive to articulate that better and better. So I'm going to take a shot at it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get in the weeds a little bit. And I hope that's helpful for the listeners and know that our organization is a test and learn organization. The foundation will execute our work very similarly to the fool in that we have a rigorous process for assessing what we are going to do. Yeah. And let me just add that that's always been what we do at the fool. We're very much, uh, let's try something see if it works or not, gather some data. We're a data-driven operation as well. But that sense that we might not have it right from the start, we always try to have it right, but we might not. And so let's test and learn and tweak as needed. So Martin is asking a question really at the outset. Here we are in the first month of our foundation, and who knows what we'll actually be saying and doing three years from now, Jennifer. But I love his question, and I hate that I left him at all confused. But as you're saying, we have a few different strategies. Uh, We know who we're serving. There's no question about that. But how best to serve them, we have theories about that, but we can't say we have it nailed yet because we're just starting. So let me add on to that and be a little bit more clear. Martin, really appreciate your lens and and wanting me to describe this as if I was talking to someone who we would be serving. Mm-hmm. Let's expand that. And actually, let's talk about someone who's maybe running a social enterprise or a small nonprofit that services people in their local community. So, David, let's do a role play. Great. So if you could be that person, that would be okay. great. And, and I'll give you an example of someone who we are currently funding. Our first financial freedom fellow is Jose Quinones of the Mission Asset Fund, which many of your listeners may have heard on our podcast. And so you'll play a role of, of, of another Jose, of someone else that's in need in this financial freedom space. Okay. So David, there are three areas that the foundation is working on. We've, we've designed that largely based on your feedback. 
because we constantly ask you what you need. What is the root cause of the challenges that you're facing and how can the Fool and our community support your work? Thank you. So we're going to focus on, oh, thanks. You're welcome. Uh, we're going to focus on shifting minds, systems change, the drivers we talked about, and money. What I know is that you, your team, and the people you serve are hurting today. And David, just a side note, why this is maybe a little bit easier for me is that, you know, I've spent so much time running nonprofits in very vulnerable communities and have experience just sort of hands-on in this space. And so in talking to you as if you were another Jose, it's really about being very clear about how we're helping you right now. And this is how we're going to do it. So three areas, shifting minds, systems change, and money. Shifting minds and systems change take time. Money is our euphemism for what we're doing now. We're going to be doubling down with our financial freedoms in three areas, developing credit, long-term savings, and access to capital for entrepreneurs, specifically vulnerable entrepreneurs. So our goal is to give you the funds that you need to be able to scale your work, but also connect you with our members that are in your local communities that can help remove barriers and scale your growth. I mean, my, our goal, David, is to see you in as many states, as many local areas as we can, because your work is amazing. So I think what I'm hearing from you is that, I mean, it's kind of like, and I'm staying within my role, so I'm a social entrepreneur who's doing some good work in some upstart context, and you're telling me you can help scale me. I think that's what I'm hearing. It, it almost sounds like venture capital. I mean, we've had Olin Douglas certainly on this podcast before. He's also a member of the Motley Fool Foundation Board of Directors. But Olin gives out millions of dollars to people who are entrepreneurs for profit to improve the world. I think what you're saying is you're you're very similar in that regard, at least working with somebody like me, because I'm somebody who's creating a change within my context. I've identified like Jose, especially Hispanic population, especially immigrant population, people who are hardworking, good people who just didn't have access to capital, who didn't have a credit score in a lot of cases, even though they're upstanding, I would say, fellow Americans. So, so you're telling me that you can help shift minds and system, but especially in the near term, it sounds like you've got some money for me. Yes. I like that. I like that. Uh, well, you know, that's what you, when you're running a nonprofit, the thing you need immediately is money, almost always. At the same time, you need those connections and the pressure on the systems to make the change so that it's not so hard. So, and I think we have the opportunity at The Fool to uniquely handle both that systems change, that connection piece and doing the thing on the ground and with just the connections, but even the funds. So funds, connections, systems change. But in the end, what does this all do? It shifts minds. And so we hope the next round, the next city we go into isn't as hard. Well, thank you for that, Jennifer. And I appreciate that. I'm going to step back into my role of podcast host. But, you know, I, I, I want to close this one up just by saying, Martin, thank you. I hope you're less flummoxed. By the way, beautiful word. I did look up the etymology because I I've used the word before myself, but I really didn't know where it came from. It's from mid-19th century. It's like the Midlands in the United Kingdom. They used a verb, flummock, which was to make untidy or confused. So I hope, Martin, and everybody listening, we made things slightly tidier and less confusing in terms of how we're working. In particular, Jennifer's emphasizing how we are finding successful people with new rule-breaking models in contexts and communities that you can help us identify and that we can then partner with 
fund. And let's say, Jennifer, in closing, that they're amazing at housing. We're maybe going to be able to hook them up with somebody who's amazing at employment or amazing at education. So as a convener and a connector, we can stand up some previously unforeseen models that we hope will be more successful than anything yet to date. So I see you nodding a lot. So I'm just going to keep moving because we should keep moving on to rule breaker mailbag item number three. This one comes from Ryan Dyke. Thank you, Ryan. Hi, David and Jennifer. Thank you for all that you and your team do. I just finished listening to the most recent Rule Breaker Investing podcast about the Motley Fool Foundation. I cannot think of a greater mission to support than unlocking financial freedom for all. Thank you, Ryan. He goes on, before donating to a charity, I like to understand how donations will be used. Will donations, Ryan writes, be put towards educational materials, books, classes, etc., or used to buy groceries for families in need, or or something entirely different. Thanks again for all you and the team do. I look forward to donating to the Motley Fool Foundation. Fool on, Ryan. Well, thank you, Ryan. And Jennifer, I assume Ryan and so many others listening to you right now will feel even better about donating if they know how their funds are going to be used. Could you shine a little light here and give us some Fool Foundation transparency on that topic? Ryan, I'm really glad you asked that question. It's very important. As a banker's daughter, I don't think numbers ever lie, and you should always know where they go. Mm. So I will tell you that the foundation aspires, in general, to invest 65% or more of our annual funds in programming as a nonprofit best practice. We are a new organization, so we are developing and launching new new initiatives. So we anticipate achieving that target in the next five years. The Motley Fool has made an invest, initial investment in the foundation to set it up for success. In fact, thanks to David, Tom, and the fools everywhere. Especially Tom. <laughs> Especially but lots Tom. of fools, too. Lots of fools, too. Um, it was one of the largest that we've made in any of our new ventures. And it's it's the right time. It's the right initiative. It's, it's the right, it was the right thing for us to do. So this was investment was made to cover operating expenses and give the foundation seed funds for sustainable programs. And I, I almost think we need to play some music or harps right there. Cause I want to make sure nobody missed that. Jennifer, such an important thing for us at the Motley Fool was to have that investment from, of course, our for-profit company that drives everything at the Motley Fool. So it has enabled us to fund operations. It's paying your salary, Jennifer, it's paying for a lot of the work being done. So therefore the funds that Ryan and others are bringing to the foundation are pretty much going out to the field, the vast majority of it. The vast majority. Absolutely true. You know, just to be clear, this is a 501c3 public charity. It is, even though it has the, the word foundation, uh, which makes us all think it's a corporate foundation, I am actually raising at least 33% of my annual budget from fools like Ryan and others. And that has been a wonderful experience to learn from all of you and visit with so many of you over the last 15 months. And... We are very lucky and very fortunate to have the full fund, the majority of the overhead expenses, so that whatever we raise goes directly to the people we serve to scale people like Jose. Awesome. All right, I'm going to cut that one off right there, full stop. Let's go to the final one. And this is from Brandon Gerrock. Now, Brandon is somebody who, Jennifer, I've seen on a Zoom session or two 
when we've gathered people who are helping already with the foundation. And I didn't know much about Brandon until I got to read this note. We're all going to get to know Brandon and also his viewpoint. And I'm so interested to hear how you're going to respond to this one. So rule breaker mailbag item number five, the last one that'll be about the foundation and financial freedom this week from Brandon Garrock. And I hope I have your last name pronounced properly. Brandon, dear David, you write, been such a thrill to be involved with the foundation at such an early stage. I wanted to answer your call for imagining the possibilities with a brief musing on our educational system and what stands in the way of financial freedom for all. Brandon writes, as a former teacher myself, I believe I provide a unique perspective. Getting financial literacy into schools is a monumental task that will take collaboration I can barely fathom. Standards drive everything that teachers do in the classroom. They are the baseline for every educational experience and what curriculums are built around. A first step is getting key financial literacy concepts into the standards. And every state, Brandon writes, has different standards. Another key step is requiring teachers to have financial literacy as part of their licensure. And every state, again, Brandon writes, has different requirements. How will they effectively teach if they themselves don't understand? And before I continue with Brandon's note, I will say that's something that we've learned in a past decade or two as we thought about the Motley Fool Foundation work a long time ago. Often we thought, why don't our kids get to learn this stuff in school? And what we discovered to be the answer, and I believe Brandon is confirming here, Jennifer, is the reason it's not ubiquitous in our schools is because we don't have enough teachers who themselves feel confident to teach financial literacy, to teach the material. Now, of course, there are many competent teachers, so we're talking more about um, quantity here maybe than quality, but I'll let you speak to that in a sec. I'm just interposing my own thought there, but I, I see you showing some ambiguous body language, and I've learned to listen to you as an expert, not me, so we're going to open that one back up in a sec, but let me finish out Brandon's notes. So he says, I cannot tell you how many times people have pointed the finger at schools and teachers and said, why didn't you teach us about personal finance, or when will I use this math in real life? One of my students was so frustrated by it that she wrote her state representative a letter with my encouragement, Brandon writes, asking for personal finance to be taught in schools. I agreed with them, but I was often tied to the standards more than they could really understand, especially in maths. Without adding personal financial literacy, what a mouthful, he says, ha, to the standards and the licensure, I can only imagine this education in schools is coming from only a select few rule-breaking teachers and schools currently. Our current system means many have no idea how money functions and the interplay between the five drivers of financial freedom. So I'm imagining the possibilities of 50 states building out a robust set of standards and licensure requirements leading to a personal finance curriculum in every classroom that speaks toward a capital F foolish mindset and addresses the five drivers of financial freedom. So here's the payoff. Here's the question, Jennifer. How, if at all, is the Motley Fool Foundation planning on working with state and federal governments to advocate for these changes? Do you believe 
This is a path to any type of success. Brandon signs his note, paying it forward. Thank you, Brandon. Jennifer. Thank you, Brandon. In short, the answer is yes. We do believe this is a path. But here's some statistics that I think will validate what Brandon is saying and then talk to the possibilities. According to the Council of Economic Education, only half of the states in America require even a single course on personal finance as a prerequisite for graduation. That said, there are currently 55 bills in 25 states addressing three areas. One is adding financial literacy as a part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like graduating with biology, math, social studies, and financial literacy. We, on this podcast, would probably advocate and will advocate in the future for that being part of the curriculum. The second piece that's happening in, this, in these bills across the United States is that there is funding for that to happen for the students, for that class, and fundings for the teachers. To your earlier point, David, I think the teachers are a big part of this, training teachers. Really, I often think to myself, are our teachers financially stable? Well, I certainly think since we're talking about one third of Americans today who are financially coping, they're so near being net savers. They're so near being investors. And I have to believe a fair number of those are teaching at various levels of education. We all know politicians don't often agree uh, on many topics. However, historically, financial literacy has been a bipartisan issue uh, because getting people to be self-reliant earlier, self-aware have the avenue to understand how to manage your risk, how to handle a credit card, Mm. um, how to invest. We all know that that helps people in their lives. There are plenty of studies that validate that financial literacy done consistently actually works. But what it also does is relieve pressure on the system later. And Mm. I think that's where you have sort of bipartisan agreement. There are some interesting things happening. I mean, financial literacy, 55 bills, 25 states, 10 plus states have passed financial literacy bills with all three of those areas, teacher training, funding for the program, adding it to their curriculum in 11th grade in 2020 and 2021. So all these years we've talked about this, it actually is gaining a lot of momentum. I don't know if that's the, the window of COVID where we all really saw the inequities We saw that education is the way to go. People didn't believe that financial literacy actually works, but done from an immersive perspective with trained teachers, it really does work. And I think that that's uh, maybe one of those myths we need to dispel because over time, we know that this is this is the right way to go. It's great cause for optimism. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's commonsensical, really. I mean, we assume education works. Now, not everybody who learns something, even something good, necessarily remembers it or acts on it. A hundred percent of the time, we're all human. But I think most of us are under the implicit assumption that education is worthwhile because once people get it, they act better. They make better choices. They have some awareness of history. They have an understanding of science. They get better jobs. So I would also have to believe, and I'm loving that you're saying this, Jennifer, that financial literacy does work. I bet lab tested with the behavioral scientists out there, I bet they'll discover the classrooms where people understand 
how to open up a brokerage account, the importance of staying out of credit card debt, etc. Those classrooms produce a lot more success than those that don't get there. Speaking of community, thinking about Brandon's idea, if this law was passed and even this piece was part of the curriculum in every state, then your friends would be talking about it and then talking about it and working on apps like Zogo and other apps that are out there that are helping Gen Z and otherwise actually stay engaged, make it fun to learn financial literacy. Well, Jennifer, thank you very much for your generous time that you spent with us this week. It was quite a month. Uh, We don't need to talk about death because we did that over dinner last week's podcast, but I really enjoyed you there as well. I think a lot of us felt like we got to know you better. I sure have, even though I work with you every day this month, it's been special. So I want to close as we move on now to our final Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag items by simply saying again, Jennifer, thank you. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention foolfoundation.org. That is the website that at least one of us this week has read through every page of. You can also donate directly to the foundation. You can ask us questions. You can tell your story of financial freedom. We've got videos up of fellow members who tell their story. We'd love one from you, dear listener, as well as we build this community and start this foundation here in April 2022. Jennifer, continued best wishes. Thanks for all you do and full on. Thanks for inspiring us to keep going, listeners and David. Full on. You know, I'm not sure I've had a fellow employee on this podcast three weeks out of four. So I think I'm going to give Jennifer a break in May, but I'm really grateful for her insights, wisdom, and especially her vulnerability, that conversation that we had last week. And I never do get to read all of the notes we get for the Rule Breaker mailbag each month, but thank you for those notes and those items, fellow fools, and I hope that was helpful. All right, well, we're going to close the page then on financial freedom and open up the page one more time this month and probably not talk about this too much in May. Go back to talking some about our mortality, about death, and specifically a death over dinner that we did this month. And I have three mailbag items to close with. And let me start with Rule Breaker mailbag item number six. And Jason Moore, here you are making a second appearance on this podcast This doesn't happen very frequently in mailbags, but it's not the first time it's happened. But when somebody produces two great notes on different topics, sure, I'll double feature them in a Rule Breaker Investing mailbag. And Jason, you certainly have earned it. As I mentioned earlier this month, the way I found out about the book, Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner, was thanks to Jason Moore. And so it's natural probably that he'd write in this letter about the experience of hearing those podcasts this month. Hi, David. Well, of course, I have to write in about the Tour de Force doubleheader episodes from the past two weeks of the Rule Breaker Investing podcast. Michael Hebb's book, Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner, found me at the right time in my life, Jason writes. It sounds like it may have done the same for you, and I hope it will do the same for many of the other listeners out there. After finishing the book, I was left to look at the many pieces of my life that I hadn't shined a light on for a long time. I've never experienced such an emotional roller coaster while reading before. And I love the style of this book as much as its content, although I found that it's quite hard to read, Jason writes, through blurry eyes. Over the past year, I've spoken a lot about having a why to focus on. If there's anything that will give you the ability to bring positive change into your life, fellow fools, it's it's having a reason 
bigger than your obstacles. Michael gave us a gift in this book by helping us to identify the whys. That's W-H-Y-S, the whys in life and build out from there. I also want to say a sincere thank you to you and your guests from last week's podcast, Dan, Jennifer, Margaret, Michael, and Bernard. On a side note, after seven years of podcasts, it was great to hear David from your partner in life. Well, thank you. It was a delight to have Margaret join us last week. Jason continues, it probably wasn't an easy sell to go on a popular podcast and talk openly and honestly about perhaps the most vulnerable part of our life, but everybody took the challenge head on and it gave me a lot to think about. I especially connected with Dan and want to say a sincere thank you to him. Also, hearing how the conversation can go. Well, you've inspired me finally to host my own dinner in the upcoming month. It's a thing I've wanted to do from the moment I first read the book, Jason writes, but couldn't get myself over that last speed bump. I'll write to you to let you know how that goes. Yikes. Thank you for all that you do to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. Fool on, Jason Moore. Well, again, thank you for all of this, Jason. And two quick thoughts back for you. The first is, it actually was an easy sell to go on a popular podcast for these friends that I invited and talk openly and honestly, as you write about perhaps the most vulnerable part of our life. I admit to asking each of them with some apprehension, with the exception of my wife, who knows this topic and is something of an expert on it herself. But I do want to say that each of the people, Dan, Jennifer, and Vinar, these are very strong, independent people. They're authentic. What you saw or heard last week is exactly what you're going to get. And so while I was a little bit sheepish with my initial invite, I asked each of them knowing who they are and knowing that it would come together. And I hope it was something special. I think hope that that podcast will be shared out. I'm sure Michael Hebb would appreciate that podcast being shared out as well, because the more people that we can get thinking and having these conversations, especially with family members that they're going to be called on to support or family members that will be supporting them, boy, that's a better world. And I'm trying to get us there. So thanks again to Michael Hebb, our talented MC and world-class author. But thank you to you, Jason, for leaning in as a fellow fool, turning me on to this. And finally, good luck with next month's dinner. And if it's a doozy or even just exceeds your expectations, I might even share one more note from you on next week's mailbag because you have me curious. Best of luck, friend. Rule breaker mailbag item number seven. This one from Joyce Browning. You never quite know how people are going to react to a podcast like last week's. Dear David, writes Joyce, I'm a longtime listener. I've thoroughly enjoyed all Motley Fool podcasts, including Rule Breaker Investing. I've gleaned valuable information, Joyce writes, and I'm hoping to build generational wealth for posterity. Well, good on you, Joyce. She goes on, I felt compelled to write to you about this particular podcast last week's. Not one word was spoken about investing. And yet I gained more from listening to that podcast than from any podcast I have listened to, bar none. And Joyce goes on, and believe me, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Thank you for continuing to find ways to make the world smarter, happier, and richer with deepest appreciation to all who participated, Joyce Browning. 
Wow. Coming from you, Joyce, that means a lot. You know, it's why we do what we do. And I, I particularly love that both Jason and Joyce clearly articulated what drives me and everything I do and everything my fellow fools do here at The Motley Fool, which is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. Discussing any topic, well, every topic of import, and to hear your reaction to last week's podcast, Joyce, that makes my week. Thank you. And finally, best for last, well, you be the judge. Rule breaker mailbag item number eight. She's humorously referred to herself as my biggest fan for some years now. And, John, it seems like a few times a year you write a wonderful note that I want to share through a mailbag. And I think you outdid yourself this month, as we're all about to hear, for very understandable and logical reasons, I think, as well. A beautiful note to close on. Dear David and Rule Breaker Investing, my note to you this month is about your interview with Michael Hebb. First of all, thank you, Jason, for the book recommendation that led to this interview with Michael. You know how much I appreciate a writer. Michael is more than a writer. He created a platform and encouraged people to talk about one of the most taboo topics, I dare say, in the world. John writes, I grew up being very uncomfortable around death. Although there isn't a rule that prohibits talking about death, it's just naturally scary and uncomfortable. And on top of that, in my culture, she writes, talking about death can be superstitiously perceived as a curse, i.e. if you talk about it, it will happen. So you can see how asking my parents what are their wishes regarding their end of life, well, that can be very uncomfortable, if not impossible. It's not until I became a nurse facing many kinds of death and mortality that I realized how important it is to talk about it with my loved ones. As an ICU nurse, although I'm regularly dealing with death and conversation around death and dying, it is by far still the most uncomfortable thing to discuss with the patients and their families. If the first time the conversation is brought up is by a physician or a nurse, if that's when it happens for the first time, it's most likely too late. And again, this comes from an ICU nurse. John writes, your loved ones are not only facing the seriousness of your illness, but are also left facing difficult end-of-life decisions that may not align with what you want. From being involved in a fair share of family discussions regarding the end of life, I can't believe I'm saying this, but there is a good death and a bad death. All death is devastating and chaotic. The bad ones are very messy. And the family's left with no closure or solace. This happens a lot when the family's unclear on what the patient's wishes are. It had never been discussed. Without that knowledge, family members may subject the patient to many uncomfortable and unnecessary procedures or even ultimately artificially prolonging his or her life. It can cause a rift in the family and extreme financial hardship. The good death happens when the family members have a clear understanding of the patient's wishes. In many instances, it may not even have been a formal conversation. Just a glimpse of the patient's wishes can be so powerful. It keeps the family focused on what matters to their loved ones and even eliminates guilt around choices of care. This ultimately provides clearer goals and allows medical professionals to care for your loved ones in ways that preserve their dignity and comfort. 
Jum continues, this episode couldn't have come at a more appropriate time. It is absolutely one of the saddest times in my family. We have just lost our mother. She was my mother-in-law, but she's like a mother to me. She was an exceptional woman, a matriarch. She was 88 when she passed. She raised eight wonderful children, eight grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. Losing her, I can only describe it as if we lost the connection to a good old era. It was devastating. Although we didn't have a formal death over dinner discussion, we were blessed to have had small conversations with her over many dinners and parties throughout the years. Her mind was also very sharp up until the very end, so she was able to tell us what she wanted or did not want. With that knowledge, we were able to avoid unnecessary trips to the hospital and arrange for hospice care where she spent her last few weeks. She passed away comfortably in her home, surrounded by people who mattered to her. This allowed each family member to spend plenty of time talking to and caring for her. After she passed, we gathered around as a family and exchanged her remarkable stories. As devastated and heartbroken as we were, we found solace in hearing her life stories and the fact that we had honored her wishes. Many, if not most of us, think of death as something at a distance. So we put off talking about it. In reality, death is inevitable. It can be sudden and unpredictable. We may not be able to control when or how we want to leave this world yet, but we can at least prepare for it. I haven't read Michael's book yet, but it's at the top of my list. I'm not sure if the book talks about advanced healthcare directives. I strongly encourage everyone, regardless of their age, to look into it. It's not very difficult to obtain, and you don't have to complete estate planning. Well, let me pause for a second, just mention John, that on pages 73 to 79 of Michael's book, he talks about the importance and benefits of advanced healthcare planning directives. So John does include a URL, which I'm not going to write here, but it's from the National Institute of Health.gov. But many of us, if you're not already familiar with this, you can just Google advanced care planning, and that will take everybody listening to me right now. Well, especially if you're a U.S. citizen, it will take you to a document that you can use that I think you and your family will find really helpful. Anyway, let me go back to the end of Jum's note. Also, she says, talk to your doctor. They should have resources and guidance for you. In conclusion, I'm in full support of the Death Over Dinner movement. Thank you very much, Michael, for leading this movement to help demystify one of the most uncomfortable yet most important conversations. Thank you, David and Rick, my producer, for always bringing great content. Until death, do us part. Foolishly yours, Jum. It's one thing to be a podcast host, talking about this subject, doing interviews, trying to think my best thoughts, trying to share those with you, my fellow fools. But it's an entirely different thing to be an on-the-ground healthcare professional in intensive care units, seeing firsthand, and not just seeing, not just seeing firsthand, but confronting firsthand, communicating, acting, reacting with real people in real distress. And often, well, every day or 
every week, maybe at least. So to me, those are the real heroes. And I like to listen to the heroes and share that out because we can all learn so much from them. Thank you, John, and, and so many others listening right now who are beacons to others during dark times. So long, April. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.